Hey there, listeners. This is Rod Gerardo, general surgery resident at Wright State University, and I'm super excited because today is the first episode of a series where I'm going to bring you in to our weekly Grand Rounds talks. I mean, these lectures are all over the place. They're anywhere from like financial advice for the general surgery resident to, you know, your bread and butter stuff, trauma, hepatobiliary. But this first episode is on something near and dear to my heart. It's on pediatric surgery. Specifically, as Dr. Elizabeth Wynn likes to put it, all things umbilical. She's going to walk you through everything you need to know about that pediatric umbilicus. So make sure that you subscribe to the channel so that every time a new Grand Rounds lecture drops, you're going to get alerted, you're going to listen, you're going to learn. But until then, enjoy the episode. What is an umbilical anomaly? That's Dr. Elizabeth Wynn, pediatric surgeon at Dayton Children's Hospital. They all center around three main categories. Number one. There's a persistence of an embryological structure that shouldn't still be there. Number two. Failure of the umbilical ring to close. And number three. A delayed cord separation. We're going to talk about each of those categories in more detail later in the podcast. But first, we actually have to review some embryology. So the development of the umbilicus begins with the division of the yolk sac into the intra and extra salemic portions. The intra-salemic portions become the alimentary tract, and it's connected to the extra-salemic via the vitellin or the omphalomesenteric duct until about the fifth to seventh week of gestation. But before that, in the third week of gestation, the yolk sac diverticulum creates the allen twist, which then extends into the body stock. Then the hindgut and the urogenital sinus have to separate the developing bladder then remains connected to the allantois through the uracus. The terminology can get really confusing, but just picture for me that embryo where the enteric duct is connected to the primitive gut, and then the allantois is connected to the primitive bladder, which is coming from the cloaca. So early on, like the fourth week of gestation, you've got your yolk sac developing. So think about the contents of that early umbilical cord. You're going to have your vitellin duct with the yolk sac vessels around it, and always have two umbilical arteries, one umbilical vein. And then the allantose, which again connects to the primitive bladder. Between the sixth to tenth week of development, the gut actually herniates out through where the umbilical cord is um, and rotates 270 degrees and then typically returns into the abdomen by about the tenth week of gestation. So then by the time you have a fully developed umbilical cord, you're going to have the two umbilical arteries, the one umbilical vein, and then the remnants of the vitellin duct and the allantois. All right, I, I think that's enough embryology that all of us can take. So let's just jump into some pathology. All right, first up, what is an umbilical granuloma? It is the most common cause of a wet umbilicus um, in a neonate secondary to granulation tissue that forms after cord separation, so it is not present at birth. And it's essentially a pyogenic granuloma, which is something that we can see often in kids, especially with wounds, and it's just hypertrophic granulation tissue that develops. How is this patient going to present? Parents say that, oh, they have a, a little dime or quarter size drainage. It's yellow. It's kind of mucousy, um, all of which fits with granulation tissue. 
The key here is to make sure that you don't have a fistulous tract. The two types of fistulas that could be present there would be either to the bladder or to the gut. So you want to make sure that it's a really small volume coming out of this. Now, how do you treat these? It can be treated with conservative management. So this is the one of these uh, anomalies that does not require a surgical consult necessarily. Um, and it is often treated with things like uh, steroid drops, like Cipridex drops. And 50 to 80% of the time, that'll do it. But in other parts of the world, you really just got to look in your spice cabinet. Table salt is actually used around the world. Uh, it's applied twice a day. You could also use silver nitrate. That's going to have about a 75% success rate. The key with that is that you want to make sure that you don't cause any burn or discoloration of the surrounding skin. So try to dry the area as much as you can before applying the silver nitrate. And then last is uh, ligation um, or excision or cauterization of the granulation tissue. I know what it sounds like, but you actually don't have to do this in the operating room. Something that is generally done just within the office um, and can be tied off with um, a small uh, silk tie and excised, or it can actually just be excised uh, using forceps. Don't worry, it's going to bleed. That's fine. Just hold some pressure. That will usually do the trick. All right, let's talk about another pathology here. Next up, we have uracal anomalies. And this all has to do with involution. The bladder forms from the ventral portion of the cloaca, which we saw during that fourth week gestation. And then it's gonna descend down into the pelvis. And as it does that, it leaves behind a uracus, which is attached to the umbilicus. If you have failure of the involution, then you have a patent uracus. That happens in about 50% of uracal anomalies. Uracal cyst, which is just a little small cyst, otherwise within this involuted tract. That'll happen about 30% of the time. A sinus with a cyst, uh, usually around the umbilicus, happens about 15% of the time. And a vesicoureal diverticulum, which is kind of just an outpouching of the apex of the bladder, happens about 5% of the time. Now, overall, these are rare, with like one in a thousand of live births. So you've got to be able to recognize what it looks like when it happens. A patent uracus has a similar appearance generally in the fact that there's a red moist mass at the umbilicus, but you can see that there's a little fistulous tract there. So the way this could happen is you'll have a patient with a wet umbilicus and you'll think it's a granuloma, but then it fails all that conservative management. So it's probably a uracal anomaly. The other dead giveaway. And you can actually see an opening. Okay, but what if the patient presents a little bit older? Is it as obvious? They don't typically present with a patent uracus. They present with an infected uracal cyst. So they'll show up like an infection. Fever, nausea, abdominal pain, erythema. They could even be indurated, but specifically... And it's indurated down towards the pelvis. Now we got to the part in the workup where we have to get some imaging. Just like most other diagnoses in pediatrics, if you have an infant, you're going to start with ultrasound. On one side of that ultrasound, you're going to see the umbilicus. And then a patent tract, and they can actually see fluid passage and will comment on it in the ultrasound report between the bladder and the umbilicus. I know that we surgeons love imaging. Just keep in mind, not every wet umbilicus needs an ultrasound. Only for those that you're concerned that there's a fistulous tract or you've actually tried conservative management and it's failed. If the patient is older, a child, an adolescent, they're bigger, sure, you can get a CT scan. We usually try to avoid that in pediatrics. And also keep in mind that, you know, the, the right now thing to do if it's infected is to just drain it and then plan for your surgery down the road once all this inflammation is gone. All right, let's try another case. All right, so you have a baby boy not a lot of urine coming out of the penis, but for some reason, 
a lot of urine coming out of the umbilicus. You got to get some imaging here. So this is where um, a VCUG is really important. That's a voiding cystourethrogram. And that's because boys can have something called posterior urethral valves, which is essentially a membrane that's covering the urethra. That means urine can't outflow from the bladder through the penis. Instead, the bladder decompresses through the umbilicus. And so the posterior urethral valves have to be addressed before you can operate on the patent urachus. Because if you address the urachal anomaly first, then the bladder is now nowhere else to go, and you essentially give this patient a bladder outlet obstruction. The other time that you can get a contrast study is if you're concerned that there's a sinus tract associated with a urachal cyst, and so you can do a sinogram. Like we said previously, this type of imaging is not routine. It's really just if you have a suspicion for these specific diagnoses. So, okay, let's say you did the workup, you got the necessary imaging, and now we're ready to address this patent urachus in the OR. You got some options. You can do laparoscopic or you can do open. Most neonate and young infants are going to get an open operation. The key steps are excision of the patent urachal tract and closure of the bladder. How do we do that? So we make a um, periumbilical incision. We dissect down along the patent urachus. You should be able to do this completely extra peritoneally all the way down to the bladder. The key thing is you have to take a cuff of the bladder and close the bladder. Okay, let's move on to the next urachal anomaly. That's a urachal cyst. These patients are going to present a lot older, you know, older patients and sometimes even adults. They get diagnosed because they become infected. That's going to be fevers, chills, abdominal pain, erythema, another thing that could clue you off. A urinary tract infection in a boy. Because, I mean, it's pretty rare for a boy to get a UTI. Speaking of rare. Rare complications are that these can rupture, and they can rupture into the preperitoneal space or into the peritoneal cavity itself. When they show up infected, they're going to need antibiotics, they're going to need drainage. Sometimes that's with IR. And then, Dr. Wynn, do we excise these cysts like we did with the patent urachus? Now, historically, um, we would have gone back and excised all of these. Yeah, I mean, that's like a tenant of general surgery. There's a cyst, we gotta take it out, right? But we know now that actually the majority of these will sclerose down um, and obliterate the tract with that infection. All right, what about like a malignant potential for leaving this behind? That hasn't really borne out since a lot of times these aren't actually known about um, and we haven't seen malignant degeneration of them. And so the new guidelines suggest that we can follow these conservatively after a round of infection, as long as it's not persistent. Now, if you are going to go after this because you're worried about a sinus tract or something, the surgery is basically going to be the same. And you can approach this laparoscopically um, in an older child or in an adult. So you put your ports out laterally, dissect down from the umbilicus, follow the tract down to the apex of the bladder, do the excision, perform your bladder repair. Basically the same thing that we talked about previously. Now, the American Pediatric Surgical Association does have a treatment algorithm for what to do when you have that patient with umbilical drainage, erythema, or a mass. So you want to start with that ultrasound. It's a cyst, you get drained, and you actually repeat the ultrasound and follow conservative management unless it persists. Um, if it isn't infected, um, then you actually go with observation. If it resolves, again, you don't have to resect it. Um, and if it doesn't resolve or if it persists or progresses, then you go follow up with surgical exploration. And then you have the last two urachal anomalies. That's the umbilical urachal cyst and sinus. You just can't treat that the same way as we just described. And then the vesico urachal diverticulum. Most of the time, these are asymptomatic, 
and incidentally found on imaging tbh you don't gotta do anything for that all right let's move on to what if instead of the bladder connecting to the umbilicus you got bowel all right now we're gonna talk about the omphalomesenteric duct or the vitellin duct let's kind of orient ourselves here we got to go back to embryology round ligament right which is the involution of the umbilical vein you have your median uh, umbilical ligament which is that involution of the urachus you have your medial umbilical ligaments which are your umbilical arteries um, and then you still have that um, phalomesenteric duct um, remnant or the vitellin duct remnant um, which is actually connected to the ilium and is what has i know that these get confusing i'm not offended if you have to rewind for a second to hear that again or google search this so you can see it for yourself anyway so these mesenteric remnants or vitellin ducts they also like the urethral cyst kind of happen on a spectrum first up you just have the persistence of um, intestinal mucosal tissue so this is going to be that umbilical polyp it's going to be your umbilical granuloma that doesn't get better with conservative management because it's intestinal mucosa next you could have a little meckles diverticulum i mean that could be a podcast all on its own third you could have a, a fibrous band a connection between the intestine and the umbilicus that is just like this fibrous tissue this can be a common cause for obstruction in an otherwise virgin abdomen and then just like the urethral anomalies you could have a vitellin duct cyst and then lastly you can have the full-on like mesenteric duct an opening from the intestine to the umbilicus if it's really severe it can even prolapse let's go through each of these individually so an umbilical polyp this is intestinal mucosa persisting. Wait, how do you differentiate an umbilical polyp from an umbilical granuloma? It's going to be larger. So an umbilical granuloma is typically going to be anywhere from about three to 10 millimeters in size. And these are going to be larger, about five to 35 millimeters in size. And then if you get an ultrasound, an umbilical granuloma is just going to look like neovascularization because it's just a granuloma. But if you get an ultrasound of your umbilical polyp, it's going to typically show a cystic lesion with thickened walls. If it's just intestinal mucosa at the surface there, you could do a surgical excision and get it all out. But if not, you may need to do a diagnostic laparoscopy to better understand its relationship with the ileum. Next on the list is the Meckel's diverticulum. I know what you're thinking, the rule of twos. It happens in 2% of the population. It lives about two feet from the ileocecal valve. It contains two types of ectopic tissue. That's gastric and pancreatic. It happens in patients less than two years of age, or at least it's, you know, more often symptomatic in that age group. And then it's twice as common in males, or at least that's what we're taught. It's actually equally distributed between the genders in terms of the vitellin duct, um, but it's more commonly symptomatic. Um, and so that's why we think of it being more common in males. Keep in mind, in those patients that do have a Meckel's diverticulum, then in about a quarter of those, there's going to be some sort of connection, that mesenteric band to the anterior abdominal wall. And that's going to increase the risk that this Meckel's or the band is going to cause a volvulus or an obstruction. The most common presentations for Meckel's diverticulum, number one, is going to be painless GI bleeding. And so you're going to have a kid that's coming in that's having bloody stools. But the kid will otherwise look well. So they'll be sitting on the general pediatrics service. And then we get consulted when they get something called the Meckel scan. What is it? Is a scan that uses technetium 99, which is taken up by gastric mucosa. 
to identify the presence of a Meckel's diverticulum. Here's the problem. This scan is not that sensitive. I mean, you think about it, it's nuclear medicine. You're looking for gastric tissue. And sometimes in these kids, it's a really, really small amount. So is it really even going to show up? And that's even if it is gastric tissue. It doesn't necessarily have gastric tissue in it, right? It can have pancreatic tissue in it. Um, so if the cells aren't present or don't take up a large amount of that tictetium 99, then you're not going to see it on the scan. So think about it. If the kid has a clinical picture that looks like Meckel's and then you get the scan and it's positive, great. But if it seems clinically like it's Meckel's, but then you get the scan and it's negative, what are you going to do? Well, you can actually decide to go forward and take these kids to the OR anyways for a diagnostic laparoscopy where you're going to run the bowel and try and see whether you can visually see a Meckel's diverticulum. Look, I don't want to jinx Dr. Wynn here, but she says that every time she's done a diagnostic laparoscopy in this clinical setting, she's found a Meckel's. But hypothetically, if she doesn't, she always does this in conjunction with gastroenterology. Because think about it, the kid's already sedated. You didn't find a Meckel's as a source of bleeding. So GI is there to do an upper and lower endoscopy to find an alternative source. Okay, here's another clinical scenario you have to keep in mind. If the kid has a Meckel's diverticulum, that's popping off of the small bowel. This can act as a lead point. So you have to keep an eye out for... Intussusception. So um, intussusception is where you have the telescoping of the bowel inside of itself. Okay, don't get it twisted. Think about in the adults, older adults, when they get intussusception, you have to keep it in the back of your mind some sort of pathologic lead point, right? But in kids, it's not the case. In kids, they're going to get a virus, they're going to get hypertrophy of their pyrus patches, and then that is going to be the lead point for their intussusception. Then they'll go ahead and get air contrast enemas a number of times to reduce it. Um, but th the thing is, if that patient keeps getting intussusception and they they're coming back five six times with recurrent intussusception then it's time to start looking for a pathologic lead point and one of the most common is going to be a meckel's diverticulum the call that i'll get is that they can reduce it down to the cecum but they can't get any further they can't prove that they can get air into the small bowel which is necessary to say that you successfully reduced an intussusception with an air contrast enema so now we have to go to the or and we got to take it out but how? One, laparoscopically, what you can do is just do a transverse resection of that Meckel's off of the bowel. And that's important because then you don't narrow this already small diameter lumen in this in this little child. But wait, Dr. Wynn, what if you have heterotropic tissue in that Meckel's? So you have to palpate the base of this um, and make sure that it's thin and not thickened um, so that you know that you're getting uh, all of the ectopic tissue. Is there anything else we can do? A lot of people favor a wedge resection um, where you take a little bit of cuff of ileum um, along with your uh, meckles. If you either you can't reduce it or if there's any question about the viability of the bowel, then you can do a segmental resection. And Dr. Wynn has an interesting way, if you're in there laparoscopically, to potentially save this child from a big laparotomy incision. You can actually make a periumbilical incision um, and just pull the bowel up through that so you're not making a large laparotomy and that's something we do commonly in kids. Okay, last of the vitellin duct anomalies. Well, let's do it with a case. All right, you get a call from the NICU. Everyone's worried because a baby is born and having bilious fluid coming out of the umbilicus. 
I have gotten this call once before and um, the entire NICU was up in arms. This sounds like classic patent and fallow mesenteric duct. It happens. But is extremely uncommon. So it happens in 0.005% of live births, okay? Dr. Wynn, what's the operative approach here? We made a peri-umbilical incision dissected down, you can actually see the mesenteric duct remnant connected to the ilium, and then this is actually the vitellin artery. Oh, wait, I'm being a bad resident. I forgot to mention the workup. It does not require any additional workup. So if you are staring at a belly button and it essentially has um, bilious drainage or succus coming out of it, then you have your diagnosis. Um, and it's typically diagnosed as a neonate within the first couple days of life, um, and you just proceed to the operating room for a resection. Okay, let's change gears. Now, let's talk about umbilical hernias, or the failure of the umbilical ring to close, which leads to a protuberance of skin over that open umbilical ring. So it should be reducible, um, so you should be able to easily push it back in or it goes back in itself when the infant isn't crying. It's often seen at or soon after birth. Is there a patient population we're likely to see this in? So it's a little bit more common in uh, preterm infants. Um, but somewhere around 3 to 20% of infants will have an umbilical hernia. And of all the different hernias that are out there. I think this is the coolest hernia because it's the only one that can get better on its own. Now, usually these are going to be picked up by the parents or the pediatrician, and then they're going to consult us as pediatric surgery because they want us to fix it. But the AAP guidelines actually in conjunction with the section on surgery um, want these to be observed until school age, which is four years old. And that's because 85% of them are gonna close by the time that they're five years old. Of course, larger umbilical hernias have a lower likelihood of spontaneous closure. And that's gonna really be defined as greater than 1.5 centimeters of a fascial defect. So even the ones where the hernia sticks out really far, if it's not a huge fascial defect, it still has that 85% chance of closing on its own. The reason we can watch these for so long is because the complication rate is, is very rare. I mean, it's less than 1%. Okay, but what about all the conspiracy theories about umbilical strapping or taping or putting a coin on the belly button? It does not work to um, put a strap over the, <laughs> the belly button or to tape a coin over the belly button. And you'd be surprised, but th these are still happening. Um, so kids will still come in with kind of a coin taped over top of it. All right, now we've talked about persistence of structures. We've talked about failure of the ring to close. But what about just an infection of the umbilicus? Umphalitis can equal necrotizing fasciitis in an infant. So it's an infection of the umbilicus. It typically starts around two to three days of life. Um, we usually see it in infants that are less than seven days old. It is much more common in low resource settings, but I wanna emphasize that we are still seeing it in the United States, particularly in home births, in water births, and in what's called the lotus birth, where you have delayed separation of the umbilical cord from the placenta. And these patients are gonna present really sick. So they're lethargic, they're dehydrated, their umbilicus has uh, redness, um, it's indurated, there may be foul-smelling drainage, um, and these are polymicrobial infections just like any other sort of necrotizing fasciitis. You can see strep, staph, and gram-negative rods. And sometimes it could look really subtle, like just some peri-umbilical erythema. This is an infection that you want to take extremely seriously because not only can they die secondary to the sepsis from it, but they can also have extraordinary complications from loss of their abdominal wall. So we're going to treat it just like necrotizing fasciitis in an adult. 
antibiotics. So typically these patients are going to be put on vancomycin, zosin, and clindamycin. You do some local cleansing, you admit them to the ICU. And then about 15 to 20% of them will progress to that necrotizing fasciitis. Those are the ones who are going to proceed to a surgical intervention. If they progress to that, there's a 50% mortality associated with it. All right, switching things up with a kind of a different type of diagnosis, delayed cord separation, meaning failure of separation of the cord after three weeks. Well, it's not really a surgical thing. We do get asked about it. We do get it on tests. The reason it's important. It's associated with an immune deficiency. Um, so separation of the umbilical cord requires leukocytic uh, infiltration. And so if, it, um, if you aren't able to migrate your leukocytes, um, you might have a leukocyte adhesion deficiency and therefore you, they, you can't get them to where you need them to go in order to separate that cord. So there you have it. All things umbilical with Dr. Elizabeth Wynn, pediatric surgeon at Dayton Children's Hospital. I know what you're thinking. You didn't talk about gastroschisis and emphalocele. I think those kind of deserve a podcast all on their own. And if you want to hear it, let us know. Leave a rating, leave a comment wherever you're listening to us. And maybe you might inspire the next episode. So until next time, I'm Rod from Wright State University. And I'll see you in the next case.